Well, I'm very thankful and humbled to be here and be given the opportunity to serve you in the ministry of God's Word. Thank you for all of your prayers. And if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. The title of this message is The Christian Hope. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, we read, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let us pray. God and Father of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Our prayer this morning is that you send your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding and to enable us to feed on the Word of Christ. Help me as I seek to proclaim these truths. Touch my lips with burning coals and help my brothers and sisters, to listen to your word, to hear the voice of their shepherd and follow him. And you be the one, Lord, who comes and speak your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most common reasons why people need eyeglasses is an eye disorder called myopia, or nearsightedness. This condition causes distant objects to look blurry and distorted. In the same way, the eyes of our faith may suffer from similar vision problems, and our difficulty to see could keep us uninformed about important doctrines of the scriptures. Where can we find the corrective lenses that our souls need for the eyes of our face? Well, in our passage, the Apostle Paul, who was a tent maker, no ophthalmologist, nonetheless prescribes the pair of glasses every Christian ought to wear from dawn to dusk. 
This morning I would like us to consider how Paul admonishes the uninformed in the church of the Thessalonians, how he reminds them of their hope, and how he instructs them how to apply the truths he proclaims to them. But first, I would like to say some things about the context of our passage and the letter Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. This book of the Bible was a letter originally written to the saints who gathered in Thessalonica. And the section where we find our passage has been called the central part of the letter. Although the Thessalonians, as Paul says in chapter 4 verse 9, were taught by God himself, these believers were still relatively new believers. It's probable that Timothy, who had recently visited this church, had reported some questions and concerns to Paul, some areas where the church wanted the apostles' instruction. And Paul says that he and his companions were desirous to see the Thessalonians again. He had founded this church himself. And he had to leave them. He was there, uh, some say, for a couple of weeks to a month. So not a long time. But he was desirous to see them again. And part of the reason he gives is that so that he may complete what was lacking in their faith. However, there were some matters that couldn't wait. There were burning issues in the church that needed immediate attention. And so Paul writes this letter to the church. Some of these issues we find in the very same chapter we're studying. Verse 3, we see the issue of sexual purity. Verses 9 to 12, the issue of brotherly love in which they needed not much instruction because they abounded in it already. He still does give them his apostolic counsel so that they may excel even more. But we also see the issue that concerns us today, the future of the dead in Christ. And so in verse 13, we see how Paul admonishes the uninformed. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Again, Paul is writing this letter to the church, but here he is addressing a specific group within the body of believers. As you all know, in, in the church there are many groups. There are the unruly who need correction. There are the faint-hearted who need encouragement. There are the weak who need the help of others. And here, there were those who were grieving because of the death of some dear saints in the congregation. But first notice how the apostle addresses this group. How does he call them? He calls them brethren. He uses a familial term that is, it sounds way too common for us, but it should still impress us 
brethren, our weakness does not disqualify us from the grace of God. It only reminds us of our need. And Paul here is not ashamed to call them brethren, but he is also he also doesn't shrink back from admonishing them for their spiritual benefit. And what was the problem causing these saints to grieve as the rest, as pagans? Well, there, there seemed to be some confusion about the future of the dead in Christ, and in specific, it seems like some had concluded that the saints who had fallen asleep would not fully participate in Christ's return. They died. The Lord is coming. What's going to happen to them? And how does the apostle address this concern? How does he deal with those who were grieving I believe that it could be summarized in the following words. And it's very simple. We should not grieve as if we have no hope because we do have a hope. Of course, the apostle elaborates a lot more than that, but everything he says is to support this one assertion. In the words of Peter, God... Chapter 1, verse 3, in his first letter, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so Christians ought not to indulge themselves in unmeasured, excessive sorrow. They ought not to fall into fatalistic grief because this contradicts their faith. And this is not limited to sorrow due to the the loss of a dear saint or a loved one, this prohibition applies to our response to all suffering in general. There are few afflictions that we can compare to the pain caused by the loss of a dear family member, of a parent, a son, a daughter, a loved one. Is there a greater pain under the sun one could experience? Is there a more painful piercing of the soul? But even under such great affliction and pain, the Word of God forbids us to grieve without measure. To grieve as do others who have no hope. And brethren, if this is the case with the greater afflictions, it is all the more true with the lesser. Such excessive grief, such unmeasured sorrow, is the result of ignoring precious truths of Christ's coming to raise his saints. It was sinful for these brothers and sisters to be uninformed. The Thessalonians were guilty of the sinful ignorance of this truth regarding the resurrection of the dead, a truth, this truth, had already, already been proclaimed to them by the apostle. We see that in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Paul says that he constantly thanks God for the Thessalonians. And one of the reasons was their steadfastness in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But we also confirm this in verse 10 of chapter 1, that they knew about Christ's second coming. Because the apostle says that they had turned from the idols to God and were waiting for the Son of God to, re to descend from heaven. So there is no doubt this church had been taught the whole gospel. And an essential truth without which we have no gospel is that Christ will return. And at his return, he will raise his saints unto life. But mind you, the apostle is forbidden, forbidding unmeasured sorrow, but he is not advocating for indifference here. He's not calling us to apathy. He's not asking us to be unmoved, cold-hearted stones. But rather, he is calling us to be moderate. He's calling us to the moderation and self-control which comes when we fix our minds and our hearts in the promises of the gospel. Here's how John Hill puts it. The apostles' view is not to encourage and establish stoical apathy or stupid indolence and a brutal insensibility. All these are contrary to the human nature, to the practice of the saints, and even of Christ and his apostles. It would be contrary to the practice of the apostle Paul himself. This is not what he is calling for. And Hill continues, the apostle's view is to forbid excessive and immoderate sorrow and all the extravagant forms of it the Gentiles ran into. You may grieve. It's natural for you to grieve. You, you should grieve, but not as if you had no hope. Because you do have a hope. These saints who were losing self-control, throwing off their clothes, plucking off their hairs, cutting themselves, shaving their heads, grieving as do others who have no hope, needed to be reminded of the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul does in verse 14. He reminds them of their hope. There we read, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He points them to the historical events of Christ's death and resurrection. He hands these Christians the pair of glasses they need. And when they put them on, what do they see? A cross painted in the middle of each lens. Notice what the apostle does here. He turns their focus to the anchor of their faith. He appeals to their faith and he uses simple logic. Some have said that what we read in, verse, in the first part of verse 14 may be one of the early creeds of the New Testament church. So in a, literal, in a very literal sense, we may call this part of the apostolic church tradition. Look at it again. 
For if we believe, and I know that we do, I'm assuming that we do, Paul is saying. I'm assuming that you believe the core truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And since I'm assuming that you believe that, I'm also calling you to believe that in the same way God the Father raised His Son in the third day, He will raise His saints on the latter day. Our Savior has defeated sin. When He died on the cross, He exclaimed in a loud voice, It is finished. And He has also defeated death itself. After being buried, he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit on the third day. And he promises the same resurrection to every believer. Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And he also says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is what Jesus himself proclaimed. And this is what the apostle is pressing on the consciences of the Thessalonians. And these truths go together. Just as he died and rose again. And we see the result of his atonement and his expiatory work he is seated at the right hand of God now and just as that is true it is also true that every believer will be raised this is the Christian's hope so there is no reason for us to despair when a saint leaves to go home with the Lord or when we're under any other affliction Now, the Thessalonians were living in the midst of a hopeless world. The vain philosophies of their day provided no hope in bereavement. And this is to be expected, indeed, because the Gentiles had no hope. They did not know God. But also among the Jews... There have been some who rejected this hope and did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees, part of the Jewish elite, claimed only to believe in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And thus, unlike their rivals, the Pharisees, they denied the immortality of the soul, bodily resurrection after death, and the existence of angelic spirits. In Matthew 22, Jesus rebukes their sinful denial of this core truth of his preaching. And he does it by pointing them to the conjugation of a verb. And this is his argument. When Jehovah God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, what does he say to Moses? He says, I am. And notice the present tense. 
He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, at the time God spoke to Moses, all three of these men were already dead. So, how can God say he is their God? For we know God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, he could say he is their God. I am their God because even though their bodies had died, their souls were in his presence. Their bodies had died, but their souls had been glorified and made perfect. Even if they were dead in a grave, he can say, I am their God. But even in that state of glory and spiritual perfection, the glorified saints are aware of their incompleteness. They were not created as disembodied souls. God created them body and soul. Their souls have been glorified, but they are still awaiting the glorification of their bodies. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ promises them at his return. This is what Jesus promised. This is what the apostles proclaimed, and this is the Christian faith. And the apostle has cited church tradition. Now he cites apostolic tradition coming from divine authority. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, not by our imagination. This is the language of the prophets he's using here. He's using it to establish apostolic authority. And as Dr. Waldron says, the apostle of a man is as the man himself. He's speaking on behalf of God himself. And the same assurance that Jesus promised his disciples is the assurance that Paul provides by the word of the Lord here. Christ assures the Christian that both his body and soul will be made perfect, sinless, and immortal. Christ's second coming signifies the consummation of the Christian's victory. On that day, our hope will be turned, our faith will be turned into sight. We will see Him with our own eyes. We will witness Him fulfill all of His promises. And notice how the dead in Christ are given priority. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see, part of your concern might be that they will not be part of Christ's return, of that glorious revelation and appearing of Christ. But you're completely wrong. They're first in line. And what the apostle proceeds to describe here is the most extravagant and magnificent Glorious manifestation of God ever yet to be seen by a human eye. When Jesus Christ himself returns to gather his saints. Verse 16. For the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And I believe here that the shout evokes the imagery of a military general commanding his troops. And that the voice of the archangel refers to that God-appointed angelic leader commanding the angelic host. And the trumpet of God is that authoritative summoning of all the hosts of heaven and earth. So the Lord himself will come with the angelic spirits and the glorified human spirits. The bodies of the saints will be raised from the tomb. And as these bodies are raised, they will be glorified. They keep their identity. It is the same body. But they are transformed in a mysterious way, in, in a miraculous way, in, a, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. And so... They are raised and united to those souls that are with the Lord in heaven now. So we have the Lord himself in the air. His angels and the saints who have gone before us in the air. And then what follows? Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We who are alive will be transformed as well. Our sinful souls will be completely cleansed. Praise God. Our mortal bodies will be made perfect. And both our bodies and our souls will be glorified. And then all saints are gathered together in the air with the angels and the Lord. Those who have fallen asleep enjoyed the privilege to be glorified first. But all saints, all believers equally share in Christ's return. And here all three parties are united forever. Not that their identities are intermingled. Men do not become gods, but after they meet the Lord in the air... They will not be separated from him forever. And this is what the apostle himself says. And so, in this manner, we shall always be with the Lord. Isn't this our hope? Isn't this what our souls long for every day? Brethren, the Bible itself ends expressing the church's desire to see this happen. Yes. You can read it in Revelation chapter 22. Oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come and gather your people. Come save your saints. Come and take your bride. This is how our confession ends as well. Is this the longing, the desire of our hope? Is this our daily expectation? What are we to do with these truths? 
that the apostle has written to the saints in Thessalonica. Are we to lock them up in a safe and hide the key? Because they're so precious? Are we to comfort our souls? Oh yes, but that's not all. Read verse 18. The, the apostle himself gives us the answer. He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. He directs us to the proper use of this truth. His conclusion is not comfort your own souls, though again we should do that. But instead he commands us to comfort one another with these words. The primary purpose of God's revelation here about the second coming of Christ and his raising up of the saints, according to this passage, is that we comfort one another. This is how we fulfill our duty to love one another. By preaching the gospel to one another and by reminding the promises of the gospel to one another. And the term comfort itself means, I quote, to call to one side. And also to make a call from being up close and personal. So yes, sometimes we need to get into each other's business. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But if that weeping exceeds, if that sorrow exceeds the measure that is becoming of a Christian, we are to take these words as a bandage and apply it to that wounded soul. When was the last time that you were intentional in comforting your brother, your sister, by reminding them that their suffering is only temporary. That even though the outward man is under constant decay, this body of death will be raised to glory on the latter day. By reminding them that Jesus Christ will return and will end all of our suffering. That even if we die, we will live with him forever. When was the last time? The apostle says, therefore comfort one another with these words. And many take these words to argue about eschatology, about the millennium. And the, 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 the Lord, the angels, the saints, they're in the air, but they're coming. The Lord is coming to execute judgment on this earth. So they don't stay there for a thousand years, like some proclaim. They come together to consummate the kingdom. So don't grieve as do others who have no hope because if you are in Christ, you do have a hope. This is your hope. If you're in Christ, let your heart be filled with gratitude and humility that by the grace of God, he has saved a wretch like you. In the words of that hymn, we know. And that you have for yourself this precious hope. Remind yourself like, that like everyone else, you didn't deserve to be saved. 
but by undeserved grace. You have this hope. Let this truth motivate you to be a faithful servant who does the will of his Lord when his Lord is not looking. His Lord has left. But he will be found, this faithful servant will be found in the middle of the night doing his Lord's will. Luke says, in Luke 12, 37, we read, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. How will you be found when the Lord appears? But also take hold of this truth, more specifically, to grow in holiness. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, we read, We know, we have this sure conviction, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. And here's the application. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Without holiness, no man shall see God. Our expectation of Christ's appearing will deter us from indulging the sinful passions of our flesh. And it will give us the power to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated. And not on the things of this earth. But if you're here without Christ, if you're here and you're still rejecting Christ, know that this hope of which I have been talking about is not for you nor for any other unrepentant sinner. A banquet has been, be has been set before you and thankfully in spite of my feeble preaching, but the Word of God has set before you a feast, a meal of fat things full of marrow. And what will you do? Will you keep sleeping? Will you keep living in darkness and let this day take you by surprise? By then, when the day comes, it's going to be too late to cry out for mercy. He's coming to destroy his enemies as well. So flee from the wrath to come. Cry for mercy now. This morning. Cry to him. So that you too may have this hope. Which I have been talking about. This entire text... The entire epistle, in fact, the Bible itself and the Christian faith stands or falls in one truth. And if this truth was not true, if that's even possible or logical, 
But if this true was not true, every Christian has believed in vain. Everything the apostle wrote here would be pure nonsense. And I hope that you know which truth I'm talking about. And that is tattooed in your heart. Verse 14 again. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's it. That is the Christian faith. This is the basis of the Christian hope. Do you believe this truth? Do you have this hope? If you were asked, what is your only comfort in life and death? Would you answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? If you can't, run to him today in repentance and faith. But if you can, take comfort in these words. He will not let his saints in the grave. He will not let their souls see corruption. He will take us to his right hand where there are pleasures and delight forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has gone before us and has defeated death on our behalf. Because of his work, we have this hope. Make it as a flame that is burning, as a fire in our hearts. Make this our daily expectation. May we not be as those who are sons of darkness, who live like in the night. May we be sons of light that are living in light of this day. Comfort every soul in this place who needs this truth. May we treasure it in our souls. And unto you and unto your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit of God, be glory forever and ever. Amen.